You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demurco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Freight Buyers Club, which, as you've just heard, is produced with the support of Demerco Express Group. My name is Mike King, and you can find this episode and many more on all podcast platforms and on YouTube, where you can also find a bunch of shorter video interviews. You can also find all this content on www.thefreightbuyersclub.com, where you can subscribe to receive every episode direct to your inbox. Please do like and review. It really does help me put this content together for you for free. Okie dokie. A little later, we'll be getting a look at what's going on in China in terms of the business environment, the economy, and also from a, a sourcing point of view. How does China Plus One look like from China? I'll be talking to Shanghai resident Kathy Liu, Senior Director of Domeco Global Sales and Marketing. But first up, this is the time of year when I always think it's quite good to take stock and have a look what's going on in the container shipping business. And most importantly, try and examine a little bit about what this means for you guys out there who are in the business of buying slots on container ships. Where's the risk? Where's the opportunity? What do changes in the competitive and regulatory environment mean for shipping's customers? And I'm delighted to say I was able to have a chat once more with Bronson C. He was attending the China International Import Expo in Shanghai in November. He's probably the most renowned container shipping executive out there. He's had a, a storied 45-year career during which he was chairman of not one, but two of the world's biggest shipping lines, Evergreen and Yang Ming. In fact, he was vice president of Evergreen Group and chairman of Evergreen Shipping, and he was the chairman and CEO of Taiwan-based Yang Ming Shipping. By common consent, he made a big impact at both. He, he developed new trade routes with Evergreen and he turned around Yang Ming's perilous financial situation. We had quite a long chat and I'm not going to play all of the interview for you today, but we are looking at some of the key points. When we first started chatting, he was telling me that shippers should expect more blank sailings as lines look to find traction with general rate increases. Although looking ahead into 2024, he's of the view that supply of container shipping capacity is going to outstrip growth. There's a lot of consensus developing around that view. I think it's, there's a lot of deliveries coming in and the economic situation makes that clear. When Bronson looks at the demand picture globally, though, for him, the bright spot is the U.S. economy. Over to Bronson. American consumption in the United States is quite healthy. For instance, unemployment ratios is quite stable between 3.5 to 4%. And uh, I think the wage has not been deducted. On the contrary, also almost increased. So I don't think the import volume from the Far East to the uh, United States the reason they reduce not just because the problem caused by a pandemic, that's because they try to digest the over inventory as soon as possible. Also, uh, based on the data I collect, the uh, travel expenses in 2022 compared in 2021, almost 5% increase. In other words, American consumer, they just in 2021, they had nowhere they can go. So all the money especially the so-called the uh, relief package 
almost five trillion US dollar. They go to buy goods because nowhere they can go. And I think at the 2023, almost the same. So my conclusion is American consumption is still quite healthy. That's because uh, they try to uh, uh, restock. Based on the uh, report made by NIF, they predict that this stock might become a restock. Maybe uh, latest uh, next first quarter. On the next year, second quarter, the restock will be uh, very obvious. Bronson, so the US economy is looking quite positive in your view, but the general global economic forecasts are, are sort of quite weak. How will that play out in your view in terms of cargo demand? You see, for economic advice, prediction made by IM or OECD, not so optimistic. Economy is one story. The uh, cargo movement is another story. Point is, if next year global cargo demand will be increased, Compared in this year, next year will be 2.2%. This year, only 1.4%. That means economy not good, but cargo movement is increasing. But again, this cargo movement is going to be increased. Doesn't mean shipping company is going to be profitable because the supply largely bigger than the cargo demand starting from next year. The shipper supply we increase up to 9.1% from the Avalana data. Cargo increase only 2.4. So um, what I quite share with uh, the, uh, the forecast made by jewelry, next year really very tough for the shipping company. Bronson, Alphalana released some great data in November that illustrated that only 3 million TU total global container capacity is actually over 20 years old. Obviously, the implication here is that scrapping or fleet deletions are going to play a relatively small part when we look at the supply side of the container shipping equation. So let me get straight to the point on vessel supply. Did lines overorder? Yes, you are absolutely right. There are several reasons why a shipping carrier largely placed their shipping order. The first one reason, of course, they make a lot of money. <laughs> I think you share with me. They are able to afford to make a big ship orders. But why they are they are going to place so huge order? The first one reason they are going to meet the requirement for IMO because IMO require all the shipping carrier try their best to place a new order with a retrofit the equipment can use the green energy like NG or Mesero. In order to reduce, they are going to purchase EUA, EUA allowance. You know where well. Second reason is a replacement. Because uh, during the past 10 years, after 2009, I think most of the shipping carriers they suffer quite a lot. And so some vessels, especially huge vessels, they don't like to build by themselves, would rather to make a long-term lease, maybe 10 years. Okay, so why not it is good timing with the money they earn during the past two and a half years, they are able to build bigger vessels to replace the long-term charter vessel, just like Evergreen, some particular carrier, they try to, maybe, I just make case, maybe they are going to have additional marketing share. So they built more vessels. Uh, yeah, market share. Yeah, there's certainly a few carriers that seem to be taking that strategy, um, looking at to increase market share. We won't name any of them, but I think one is from Denmark. Uh, if I can just come to another point, and I guess it's slightly contrarian. It's not a view I've heard from many people. 
But everyone says that container lines have, have over-ordered, so I'll be devil's advocate, because there is an argument that maybe they actually ordered at the right time, that as we see the tanker owners and bulk operators start investing in ships that are more suitable for a decarbonized supply chain using new fuels or even using LNG, that there's going to be bottlenecks at shipyards down the road. So maybe container lines have avoided those bottlenecks. Do you think there's any validity in that viewpoint? Well, I don't think of those, the CEO of a container shipping company, I'm not a fortune teller, okay? They just do whatever they want to do. And uh, you just measure the bar carrier or tank carrier with a, that's not the decision from the shipping carrier, not the decision from the shipbuilding yeah. Which carrier they are going to receive this uh, shipbuilding order as a first priority. That's not decision from the shipping carrier. That's from the shipbuilding yard. I think the container uh, shipping company's CEO, because they made a lot of money, they tried to build the vessel as quick as possible or as many as possible. That's my observation. Okay, yeah. Vertical consolidation strategies by carriers. I won't name all the carriers that are doing this, but they're mostly the European ones. Are you seeing any signs that vertical consolidation is actually protecting the shipping lines from the current cyclical downturn? Because I'm not really seeing that, and I didn't see much in the most recent quarterly results either. Well, you see, uh, we're talking about the vertical integration for the uh, service provided by uh, those shipping carriers who traditionally provide only port-to-port service. I think the uh, shipping carrier, they learned so much experience during last 30, 40 years. They realized when you are purely managing the service only based on port-to-port, then you are going to suffer some kind of risk because to own the ship, to build a ship, uh, it's one kind of risk. If you cannot make money, now you will be in trouble. So in order to provide better service to customer, to shipper, if they can provide so-called the uh, value-added service, value-added service, that's, I think that it can protect their risk in case maybe, to be honest, for the coming five or 10 years, this uh, risk will apparently be showing up on the stage. So if you can provide a so-called end-to-end service, then we'll be more safe for you to be survived in the shipping industries. That's the reason I think, uh, yeah, we don't name which carriers. They are doing this quite uh, seriously. In my personal point of view, that's quite right direction. Because the shipper, they have more choice. They can choose which company they can use by reducing their, their cost. So some uh, shipping carrier taking this advantage during the three years, they have bought a lot of the uh, warehouse tracking company, consolidation company in order to provide end-to-end service. So you think as a strategy, vertical consolidation is a good idea then, even if it's not making a profit now? You see, if you provide those kind of end-to-end service, to be honest, I think a lot of carriers, shipping carriers, they learn something from the uh, logistics service provider. They don't build any vessels, but they make some profit. But shipping carriers, they buy a lot of assets, but the money they earn every year, not the same as those logistics service providers earn. I mean, just for our listeners, Bronson, who maybe they're not quite sure how these economics have worked out in the past, if you go back 20 years or more and you look at how the biggest forwarders have turned down cycles into profit. They, they've rarely, really been in the red. 
If you do the same sort of analysis on container shipping lines, though, it's the other way around. They were in the red an awful lot over that sort of two or three decade period. The exception, of course, being the pandemic. Um, okay, let's move on. After COVID, we had war in Ukraine. We've now got conflict in the Middle East. We have a civil war in Sudan. How would you explain how events of the last 18 months or so have changed your view of geopolitics and, and the logistics landscape? How will that guide the future of globalization, at least as far as it affects container shipping? Oh, well, the, uh, the uh, geopolitical, I think most uh, the cases starting from 2018, that's a charity world between China and America. And plus this time, the COVID-19, which already, uh, uh, or I would say, uh, have driven a lot of investors, foreign investment investor in China, trying to relocate part of their investment in China to elsewhere. Not only the foreign investors, even Chinese investors, they cannot suffer those kind of environment, maybe the labor costs, maybe the other environment. So they also relocated their factory to Southeast Asia taking the advantage of RCEP, those kind of uh, development, that's a so-called geopolitical. The uh, globalization, some people say, hey, globalization already no more exists in the world. I don't think so. The globalization is still there. Right now, just because uh, they try to uh, diversify as part of their uh, heavy concentrating in China to elsewhere, especially to uh, Southeast Asia. So I would like to uh, create another one terminology. I, I always say globalization to be easy together with regionalization. That's if so many factories move to uh, Southeast Asia. Also, you can name this uh, concentration in Southeast Asia is called regionalization, or maybe Mexico or regionalization. But doesn't mean globalization already finished. I don't think so. You mentioned RCEP or RCEP, which is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, which officially took effect at the beginning of last year. And as you say, it sort of builds on these regional trade agreements, essentially. Now, of course, if we have a more regionalized world, as you've outlined a little bit there, what does this mean for the types of vessels that people have been ordering? If you need more flexible ships outside of the Asia-Europe trade, where these ultra-large container ships are best fitted for, if you need more flexible ships, presumably they're more likely to be smaller ships than the 20,000 plus behemoths that people have been ordering. I, I guess my point, Bronson, is have carriers been ordering the wrong ships? Okay, that's a very good question. The large vessel steer very uh, uh, workable very well. We take the uh, trade, TP trade and the flights to Europe, or we take this China as a hub, the major pole, as a, the, uh, the world factories. The number of the uh, larger vessels no need to be reduced, but I would like suggest don't build those huge vessels too many in the future because you may always agree part of the cargo gradually will be relocated or expand to Southeast Asia. So the huge vessels, wow, okay, maybe you can inc increase the uh, shipping order uh, a little bit for the future, but not so much. Instead, I would like to suggest you should deploy more medium size of vessel in Southeast Asia because those kind of size of vessels 
uh, um, there are two reasons. One reason is maybe you don't need so much uh, space. Or oh, sorry, you will not use so many space. Maybe that's it. if you generate or you load the cargo from Southeast Asia, maybe enough to fit up the vessels in Singapore as a hub center, or the other Malaysia, or Thailand, or even Vietnam, or even in the future, Kuala Lumpur in, in Sri Lanka. That's also good, the hub centers. From here to Europe, then the size of vessel you need, no need to build it so huge, more than 24,000 TUs. Instead, maybe uh, 16, 15 TUs a size of vessel, that's enough. That's first one. The second one reason is because, you know, well, we know very well, when a Panama Canal suffered in the persistent of drug restrictions, but uh, really very difficult to predict. The uh, Panama Authority, Canal Authority, will give you so strong or how long the restriction. So if I'm the uh, CEO of a shipping company providing the service of flights to U.S. East Coast, probably no. As a matter of fact, they have done this during the maybe five years already, but in the future, there are more frequency will be deployed from Far East Canada to U.S. East Coast. Then Southeast become very important area. That's called regionalization. So that's the, uh, again, to be short, USCV is necessary to provide a direct service from China to Europe or Mediterranean. But I would like to uh, suggest also that's an appropriate idea to uh, arrange maybe 15,000, 16,000 vessels or maybe 13,000 vessels because 13,000 vessels can pass through Panama Canal. Okay, if the size more than 13,000 TU vessels, you are not able to pass through Panama Canal. But in order to reduce your cost, you need cost maybe because Swiss Canal doesn't have a such limitation for the uh, size of vessels, okay? So if the vessel, uh, uh, the first loading port from Southeast Asia to U.S. East Coast, maybe you can deploy the uh, 16 or 15,000 tons vessels. Just as you were talking, Ronson, it struck me. We always talk about geopolitical risks, but you mentioned the Panama Canal, and as of November, those Neo-Panamax ships, they're not actually getting fully laden because there's drought. In, in that region. They're having to offload and then reload again in the Atlantic because of low water. We're also seeing the same in the Amazon where there's low water surcharges. So obviously weather is a big risk moving forward. But may I just pivot and ask you another question about the idea of globalization and how a different type of globalization might affect shipping demand. Of course, we have nearshoring, friendshoring, ally shoring, which might change the nature of where that demand growth is in the future. If we have more sourcing from places like Mexico for the US market or from Latin America, or we see shippers moving to India, which we are seeing, of course, this affects how trade flows. But the other thing is, is technology. Now, what happens as people need less cargo? I'll give you an example, EV manufacturing in the future. Now, instead of needing parts like you might do in the automotive supply chain, maybe you just need a software update. Is it a concern for you when you look at the long-term future of global container shipping, the fact that there might just be less cargo that needs to be moved? Well, I think also, again, this is very interesting. It's a question you just raised up. Very important. I think right now the American, they are, I think the, I forgot, starting from which months, Mexico become their, the biggest import country. Canada is second. China is the number three. 
not so quite a uh, work. They are coincident with what you just mentioned. So also, as a shipping carrier, you have to pay some attention to build the proper size of the vessels in the future. If those cargo uh, of the factory shipped uh, in sourcing or the near sourcing for the, the American investor invest the uh, factory in China, they move back to United States. That's called insourcing. They move to uh, Mexico. That's called near sourcing. In the future, they don't need any ship or even the aircraft to ship their cargo from China to United States. Instead, they just need a low, a low transportation from Mexico to the uh, United States. So that's really uh, all the shipping carrier got to pay some attention about these kind of tendencies. So I think that you just mentioned earlier, uh, the large vessels don't build too many. You got to be cautious to realize what the uh, change for the, the uh, shipping industry in the futures. Maybe you don't you don't need to build so huge vessel, not so much cargo out of China already in the future. But I would to say everybody so the China export is going to be declined. Well, I don't think so. In the short term, maybe not the decline, but the growth rate, every year the growth ratio will be less. Still they are going to increase, but the percentage to be increased, to be grow might be gradually less. On the contrary, the Southeast Asia has become very important. So we need a more of this deployment in all the, uh, the Southeast Asia to ask where. Okay, that's my uh, observation. So your view, Bronson, would be that we'll probably see a lot more production moving, certainly to Southeast Asia. Uh, we'll see a growing share of, say, US imports will be coming from those countries and shipping lines need to start planning for this now. Yes. I'll come back to part of my conversation with Bronson a little later when we'll chat about new shipping regulations in Europe. But these issues around globalization and what it means for China were things I discussed with Kathy Liu, Senior Director, Demerka Global Sales and Marketing. My apologies for the background noise, but Kathy was speaking live on the exhibition floor at China International Import Expo. But certainly what came through from Kathy loud and clear was that she's an optimist on China and believes there are signs the economy is bouncing back. Over to Kathy. So I think after three quarters, finally, I think today I get good news about the Chinese economy. Because if you noticed just yesterday, the IMF announced a figure that they adjust a little bit about the Chinese economy from previous 5.0 to 5.4. And the next year will be unjust to 4.6. So I think this has used the confidence for the market to the Chinese economy, especially after the pandemic. Kathy, from a China perspective, what's the message on this sourcing conundrum facing a lot of OEMs? Is China plus one over-egged in terms of the negatives for China and this sort of implication that its role as the factory of the world is under threat? I think from my point of view, we still see it uh, positively because, you know, uh, although it's under, uh, let's say, China plus one, but it's actually not only encourage those like uh, European or American manufacturers, they move out of China or let's say certain percentage out of China into Southeast Asia, India, Mexico. Actually, it's also encourage those Chinese manufacturers. They are also moving out of China and then moving a certain percentage to other countries which I think to help those Chinese manufacturers to be global. 
I think it's a good trend. You know, normally if they like in the past, maybe they never think about that because they, they enjoy the Chinese market, which is maybe for them it's enough. But now because of this trend, those Chinese companies, they are gradually or they be pushed to move their uh, branch office or establish their branch office or factories in other countries, which actually is the first step to go international. So what we see is actually it's also beneficial to those Chinese manufacturers for them to help them to go international. That's what we see at the positive side. I think you're working with these China manufacturers as well, are you, as well as these manufacturers from elsewhere around the world? Yeah, right. We're working with them and we help them to move their production line to like Vietnam, to Thailand, to India, to Mexico. We support them for this movement. And then in the future, we also will see more and more of those business actually will generate in those countries back to like US market or Europe market. So it's actually a good signal for us as well. We're going to take a short break now and right afterwards, we'll be back with the continuation of my chat to Bronson C about the future of container shipping. This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with DeMurco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. DeMurco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly for trans-Pacific lanes. With 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India, and Southeast Asia, DeMurco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club. Always great to hear from Kathy, and she'll be back on Freight Buyers Club during 2024. Now, just finally, we're going to turn to regulations as we come back to Bronson. There's two particular regulations that are going to affect all shipping lines around the world in 2024. And they both emanate from the European Union. Firstly, there's a new regulatory system coming in, and it's called the Emissions Trading System, ETS. This is from the European Commission, and it's a new regulatory system that requires shipping lines operating in Europe to surrender to authorities what they're calling EUA, EU allowances, essentially, And these are really carbon credits. Uh, They've got to correspond with fleet emissions from the previous year. And that's probably the key point, which I'll come back to. Now, these regulations, it applies not just to shipping within the EU, but also to all shipments to and from the EU. What this means really is that shipping companies have to start purchasing EUAs on an ongoing basis from the start of next year in the run-up to initial deadline of September the 25th in 2024 when they have to surrender their EUAs. There's a lot of things going on here, and there's a lot of controversy about container lines are going to pass this on to shippers. I asked Bronson how he thinks container lines will manage this. Well, basically, uh, I could not answer your question. It's going to change or make some further uh, revise. But based on the data I have seen recently, how the shipping carry is going to uh, this challenge starting from next January, Yes, most of the uh, shipping companies already announced how much money they are going to so-called surcharge. Generated from the shipper who put their container on the vessel uh, originated from forest to uh, destination in Europe or Mediterranean. I think this uh, so-called ETS, they can't pay the surcharge. The amount is varies from uh, carry to carriage, okay? 
Some collect my maybe uh, one hundred dollars per, per box per t per forty foot. Some maybe twenty dollars per fifty uh, foot. That's various. Starting from next January. On the other hand, uh, the uh, shipping carrier when uh, one side they collect this uh, surcharge from the shipper. On the other hand, they have to pay to the uh, authority nominated by EU or EC. Uh, how much going to pay this one kind of formula? As you mentioned quite right, they start to calculate from next uh, January all the way to the next 2025, the first quarter, they have to prepare. I mean, the ship owner, they have to prepare those kind of data and then uh, surrender in September to the EU. Then the uh, uh, shipping owner, they have to ask a requirement from EU to purchase from some association or institution authorized by EU. Okay, that's the whole pictures. Well, to be honest, you just mentioned whether this kind of announcement will be uh, revised or, or adjust. To be honest, I don't know, but it's quite a, a show. They already, I mean, the shipping carrier already announced they are going to uh, generate or they are going to charge those kind of surcharges for next uh, January 1st. I mean, of course, Bronson, it's very difficult for carriers, but for the shippers, how are they going to be able to see that these charges are being passed on transparently when, when each vessel carries so many different types of cargo. I mean, it's, it might be feasible if you've got FCL loads, but for an LCL load with so many different shippers in, in one box, how do you explain what the fee is for that, for that particular journey in terms of carbon credits? That's a difficult thing for the lines to pass on to the shipper, isn't it? I think the, um, all the carrier, they try, they would try their best to make this formula to uh, collect a charge as transparent as possible, okay? The unit they charge is based on 40 foot or 20 foot. Basically, not so, not so difficult. But if you are exporter or if you are shipper in, South, in Far East, of course, you have the position or right to, to challenge the shipping carrier. Hey, why you charge me $20? Competing, uh, you are competitor charging me only $40. Well, that's all depends. That's a very difficult, but anyway, as a shipper, you can reject. If you charge me more, I can ship my cargo to a, a, a shipping carrier, uh, the B, who charge me less. Then you go. So that's the reason, that's the reason when the supply more than demand, starting from next, no, right now, not next year. As a shipping carrier, as if you want to collect money successfully, it's better you satisfy with customer's curiosity. That then not to challenge you, this is not a right, uh, right surcharge. Okay. So, anyway, I think all the shipping carriers, they will try their best to uh, calculate what is the best fare, the most fair to charge on the air shipper. Whether they are going to, to be successful to collect the money, well, they see. Yeah, of course. And we've already heard from some shippers that there might be a bit of pushback on this. Um, but as you say, if people start comparing all in cargo freight rates, then these new charges will probably just become part of the competitive mix and the market will adapt. So it's a very good point. But more broadly, in terms of cutting emissions in container shipping, how do you think lines are performing? Are you seeing any sort of drive towards a fuel that will be adopted in the future as a means of decarbonizing containerized ocean supply chains? Uh, I think most of the shipping carriers, they have a such a strong uh, uh, goal. Also, they try to, do, to reduce to emit the carbon as much as possible. So that's the reason probably you saw some kind of a statistic on the shipbuilding years. Yeah, 
is some kind of shipping order. If you calculate it from past January up to now, there are 187 vessels of which 52% those new order are, are going to reach off the image with the so-called Maison. 31% LNG. The uh, only uh, less than 15 uh, percentage this year used traditional fuel oil, the uh, fossil oil. So you can imagine most of the shipping carrier, they try to uh, contribute the clean earth as possible. But of course, where they can get enough, measuring or LNG, LNG may be easy, but the measuring not easy. Or maybe ammonia also not so easy, but that's one kind of a goal. Most of the shipping carrier try to head this direction. That's no doubt. So I, I also hope that customer also also encourage and try to uh, echo this kind of exercise, trying to protect the earth. So if any kind of surcharge, supposedly they are they are going to require to pay. Uh, I I would like to uh, urge, try to as possible as they can to protect the clean earth. I couldn't. I would love to ask you a lot more questions about decarbonization and how container lines are performing. I don't want to lose anyone here because we're going to talk about regulations again. And if you are listening to this podcast and you're thinking, oh, don't know if I can listen to a bit more on regulations. Well, do please bear in mind that Bronson's been here and bought the t-shirt on how regulations affect shippers and shipping lines. So there's probably no one better to listen to. If you listen to one person, it's Bronson. What I'd like to discuss is the European Commission has decided not to uh, renew liner shipping's exemption from competition rules. This happened in October and it was quite the shock to industry. Most people had assumed it would be extended. So the regulation in question is the 2009 Consortium Block Exemption Regulation, which has basically allowed carriers to operate vessel sharing capacity agreements and pool their capacity. What this means is that lines will now fall under general competition rules. Essentially, they'll just become like any other industry in Europe, but they were excluded from this sort of oversight previously. Now, the idea from the commission or how they've at least explained their ruling is they don't want EU businesses and consumers to essentially be burned by carriers. And a lot of politicians felt that was what happened during the pandemic. What does this mean for carriers though, Bronson? How are they going to adapt these vessel sharing agreements? Is it going to affect the alliance system? Is it going to rip up the alliance system? I don't think so. As you mentioned, uh, the EC, they just regulated this kind of decision to stop the extension for the CPER, consortium block. The most important is block exemption regulations from April 25th next year. But the abolishment doesn't mean the uh, alliance or BSA would not be allowed to operate continuously in the shipping industry as compared to Europe. As long as, because there's some kind of requirement from the EU to the alliance, that's so-called safe assessment. As long as the alliance, yeah, they can prepare uh, the safe assess assessment to be accepted by EU, I think still the alliance and the VSA can, will be allowed to keep operation in the financial European trade. Okay, so it will not be affected by the uh, abolishment. So, Bronson, we've already seen the two M alliance of Maersk and MSE split, or at least they're in the process of splitting. Your view is that this won't really affect the other lines at all with this new regulation for competition rules? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a fortune teller, but based <laughs> on the, uh, 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 they are competitive. You think it is quite right choice. I think they will follow, no doubt. But if they don't think it's quite right, 
So I think the uh, the other carriers are probably there. They are going to watch the uh, future development of the divorce. I interviewed the chairman of the Federal Maritime Commission quite recently, and he didn't really give me much of a clear answer on this about whether the FMC will follow the EU on this, or obviously the other big regulator is China. What's your view? Are you expecting them to coalesce around the European Commission position on competition rules for carriers? Well, you see, the, uh, the up to now, we have not seen or heard any report about this response to the uh, EU's recent action from any newspaper or media. So I really don't know. But if I ask my uh, personal perspective, if you are going, I mean, the Chinese government or the American government, if you try to, uh, if they are going to intervene with some kind of a modification to work this case, that's what create a lot of inconvenience uh, to the alliance. Because every country, the uh, authority, their own thinking or their own policy. How can you ask the allies start to uh, generate cargo for instance from Shanghai all the way to uh, uh, Hamburg? So you got to meet the different policies from the different countries, how they can uh, work smoothly. You, you know what I mean? So it's better when we have some kind of the uh, global system that's all, almost everyone always similar. Don't create a different uh, policy. That's a become disaster. Bronson C, it's been my pleasure. Very fascinating chat to you as ever. And thank you very much for coming on the Freight Buyers Club podcast. Yeah, that's a honor to have a chat with you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the Demerco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.